The I Can't Even Show with Margaret and Ellie starts now. Welcome to the first episode of I Can't Even. We are your hosts, Margaret and Allie. If you know us from Girl FM Headline News, this show is going to be a little more serious. We are both senior members of the millennial class. We've got jobs. We're both married. We have houses that we own. I'm a mom. We've been adulting hard for over a decade now, and there are still so many things we still struggle with. Today, we're going to talk about work. So if you're a working woman, you've obviously read about equal pay, and you've definitely heard the phrase, know your worth getting tossed around a whole lot. In the first half of this episode, we're going to hear from some women who struggle to get what they deserve. We're also going to hear from Inside Edition and CBS Thursday Night Football correspondent Megan Alexander, who spoke with us about her career. Before we hear her awesome advice and get the info on her new book, Let's hear from some of the women who called in to share their stories with us. This is L.A. Markison. She's 29 years old, and she had a rough time working for a startup. I got kind of recruited for this startup in Manhattan, and uh, it seemed like the right thing to do because it was like a salary job, and they trained you up on all these cool things that I should know for later in life, like sales tactics and, you know, like how to be an adult and all this stuff. So... Uh, when they gave me the job, it was a sales job and it was like, you know, I don't know if you know how much, uh, like how sales jobs are usually set up, but it's, it's almost exclusively commission based and it's very, very low base pay. Um, and you know, it was all this talk about like, Oh, you, but you make so much more with the commission and it's like so easy and it's so fun and the culture is so great and culture, culture, culture. It's like something they love to push. I think at these startups, um, and it just wasn't. And we we were all like scraping by and making like almost no money. And it was really difficult to sell the product because uh, it wasn't a great product. <laughs> the they made it very clear that they had a specific way of running the whole structure of the organization, which was that any sort of junior employee had to come in and like do their time in sales. And that everyone had this starting pay and it was kind of like this almost like commiseration in a way like like everyone has to start on the same footing, you know, we're all like privates in the infantry or whatever. So I, I gave it a shot and I think they actually even might have given me like 2,000 extra because I had some valuable experience, but it was like, you know, minimal. Uh, I actually stayed for a year and a half. But uh, in very different capacities, I, I hated the sales thing. It was just so not me. And I moved to a different department and they, I tried to quit and they did not want me to quit, which is nice and all. But, um, you know, in order to stay, I said I needed more money. And so they barely increased the salary. And I, for some reason, accepted it again. I think that's the thing that's really strange when I look back. It's like, why did I accept too little money over and over again. Like I tried to quit like two or three times and each time they gave me like a better working arrangement, like um, more flexible schedule and um, higher title and, you know, more little perks and stuff, but they barely budged on the salary. And I even had a uh, sort of a weird experience where they had agreed with one salary and then tried to kind of go back on it. And then I had to like refight for the salary again. And all, all this time we're talking about a salary that came in at, at, at its highest at just under 50,000. So we're like talking about pennies here. 
We also have our Jane Doe who couldn't give her name because she's still dealing with a situation at what I will call the bad place. She got a job through a fellowship that she started just last week and nothing has gone right so far. I started out with one supervisor and one position title and through the interview process, there was some discussion around me doing work that was more fitted to my skill set. So we're talking about me doing some media work, some things to get uh, our clients more integrated into the neighborhoods where we'll be working, where there's some tension. And so I just wrote them an email and said, okay, you know, I'm really excited that I was off with a job. Could we put these things that we discussed and I'm excited about in the job description? So that when I sign this contract, my job is, you know, it's not just something you're adding on to my workload. This is actually my responsibility. Um, and they were, the supervisor was not thrilled, I guess. And he wrote back something like, well, you have a lot to learn here first. Um, and we'll see. We can revisit this you know, later. It wasn't the worst thing in the world, but I felt like it was going to be a continued discussion. It wasn't the best tone. And then when I came in to sign the contract to just sign the job description, it was a totally different job description. And it was with a different supervisor. And the supervisor, who is now my supervisor, um, presented it as both exciting, open-ended, but also completely uh, set in stone and my only option. He, I think, said, I want to make you happy. What would make you happy? And I just said, um, you know, I just want to be make sure that I can be somewhat creative and somewhat self-directed and that this is not a bait-and-switch situation, for which it seems like is common in this uh here and he said oh yeah yeah but you know if you don't want to do this job I completely understand this to say like I've been planning for months with this fellowship to come in for one job I come in and he's saying if you don't want to do this job basically leave there wasn't really room for going back or changing it so I signed it with the hopes of well this person asked what would make me happy Maybe they're concerned. Maybe they're actually, you know, a reasonable person. I started on Monday and it has been like total hell. <laughs> I've never had a worse situation with the supervisor. Um, I came in, there's a new job title and I don't find out what my job is until he introduces me to other people with this job title with these roles, they're totally antithetical to what I'm there to do. Um, and throughout the day, whenever I show any sort of resistance, I'm reminded that he can fire me and that the fellowship isn't my boss. Um, that's my first day of work with this person. <laughs> that is literally the most upsetting work story I've heard in a long time. I know. And that just covers her first three days at the office. 
But the good news is there's a lawyer at the fellowship who has been working with her and who has managed to get her out of her contract. So she's currently looking for something better. Good for her because starting a job and negotiating that contract is really tough. It really is. And I think she might have benefited from some advice from our guest. Megan Alexander is no stranger to contract negotiations. In our interview, she said it was actually through some changes to her contract that she was able to write her new book, Faith in the Spotlight, which is available online and in stores now. So if you're not a religious person, please don't let the title scare you off from the second half of this podcast. Faith in the Spotlight is full of amazing advice about navigating a career while being true to yourself. We had a really great conversation about finding mentors, being unapologetically ambitious, balancing home and family, and of course, negotiating pay. Hey. All right. So this is Allie. Hi. (laughs) Uh, And Margaret's on the other mic. Hi. (laughs) Reading this book, I really felt like you were sort of aiming towards younger women trying to let them know how they can get a seat at the table. Is that accurate? Like what what was your drive to, to write this book? Yes, absolutely. I've wanted to write this book for a while now. I feel like there's a lot of great books out there for um, ambitious men. We have, I know of lots of great um, authors written by men that are successful in life. And then there's, there's some for women. I mean, obviously Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In is a great one and one that I really, really enjoyed. Um, a couple other ones that have come out recently, Lisa Gibbons wrote a great book called Fierce Optimism. But a book aimed at the young, ambitious, millennial woman, I haven't found too many. And especially the millennial woman that wants to stay true to her values or her faith, whatever that, that may be. Um, my book is for them. And the sort of final kick, if you will, to get this book finished is I received an email from a pastor in Seattle. And he said, I have a, a congregation full of young, ambitious women with big career goals and dreams but they're worried to get that corner office or to climb the ladder that they're going to need to compromise their values. I don't know of that many people to point them towards, but I know of you. You you seem to know how to do that dance. Would you come talk to these women? And I know how important role models have been in my life and people that I looked to and wanted to model my life after. So I said, you bet. I'd love to come speak to those women, and I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to write this book. I want to try to tackle that conversation and tackle that question from a variety of angles, giving practical, real-life scenarios about what it's like on the job, real situations, how I've navigated them, and let people know it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is just how it's worked for me, but maybe others can be inspired and glean some wisdom so that they can be motivated to go after it too and know that it is possible that you can thrive in your career while staying true to your beliefs. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about in terms of what you're accomplishing with the book sort of touches on something you mentioned in the book. You're almost kind of a casual mentor by just having done this. For a lot of people, you know, for me, like you said, I read Sheryl Sandberg's book and in a way I learned a lot from her and I don't even know her. (laughs) So, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about casual mentoring? Yes. I think a lot of times, I don't know about you ladies, but when I heard the word mentor growing up, I really had this idea that I would find someone that I admired that was further down the career path than me. We would get connected. We would meet every other week for an hour over coffee. This person would completely guide me in my career, give me all wisdom, and it would just be this perfect situation. 
I have never had that type of a situation in our industry. Life is incredibly fast paced. I'm under deadline. People around me are under deadline. A lot of times I don't even have time to finish my lunch at my test. So I've really, you know, I really want to encourage other people that you can still find those mentors if you think outside of the box. Be creative in how you seek those relationships. And yes, casual mentor, which can be admiring someone from a distance, being in the same room with someone and just having some interaction over maybe a work project, but not forcing it to be this, oh, we need to meet once a week. Being intentional about your conversation. And one of the best examples I can give is Deborah Norville, who's the anchor of Inside Edition. You know, I get very little time with Deborah. She has her own busy life. She is also running our show, anchoring. She's a mother of three. She's involved in a ton of other different projects and charities. So I really come to appreciate those quick one or two minutes that I get with her every now and then in the newsroom. And I just try to be intentional with that time. Ask her her opinion on a story. Ask her her thoughts on, you know, what's the key to a long-lasting marriage because she's been married over 20 years, which is, you know, an accomplishment. Be intentional with your time, and you can find those casual mentors in a variety of settings. And yes, oftentimes one of the best source, uh, uh, best way to collect wisdom and to gain wisdom is reading books. You say you, you know, you talk to your your colleague, Deborah Norville. I'm wondering, do you find that there's sort of like an easy entree uh, into starting a conversation maybe because you have a similar perspective? You know, I think we're seeing more and more of that. Um, it was not easy for me to find that when I moved to New York City eight years ago because my job as a news reporter is so um, unusual and last minute. It's not very scheduled. I you know, I could get a phone call the night before and I'm told I need to fly across the country to cover a story. I have a really hard time keeping plans, keeping dates because of that. So, no, it was difficult for me. And when I did find those women, it was after a couple of years had gone by and I was able to, you know, seek out those friendships. So social media has made it easier, which is great. We're able to connect with people now. Um, easier than ever before in terms of quickly sending each other messages or sharing encouragement with each other. But I really found that it takes a while to find those friendships. I think that there's a lot of organizations that are popping up now to try to fill that void, which is great. Um, but yeah, I think you got to take your time to put together that community and community is so important. How much has that helped you in terms of reviewing uh, contracts or talking about negotiations? You know, one of the most important things to me in that chapter, Let's Negotiate, is I shared my first full-time news reporter salary. I found that in a lot of the books that I've read about negotiation, people do, they talk about everything but actual numbers. And then you find yourself going, okay, I, I still don't know if I'm in the range of a salary for this particular job, if I'm aiming too high, if I'm, you know, aiming too low. I shared it and I even had people say to me, editors that reviewed the manuscript, are you sure you want to share that? My father even said to me, are you sure you want to talk about money? You know, that's Mm -hmm. sort of the one thing that, you know, what do they say around the dinner table? Don't talk about religion, politics, or money. (laughs) But I said, dad, I have to, I have to, how else, how else are we going to help each other unless we're open and authentic? So yeah, it's scary. It's scary to reveal what's going on in your situation, but that's the only way 
I found that I've been able to grow and better myself is when I did get real and authentic. So yes, in negotiations, you got to just find those few people who you admire and whose opinion you value and you trust them. And then I, I do think you need to share. It's so important to get a second opinion. There were many times in my career where if I would have just taken one person's advice, um, it really would have ended up not being a very good deal. And by going to get a second and even a third opinion, I think I came out with a better work contract and a better work situation. And the other last thing I'd add on that is um, when I was um, when I got my opportunity to cover Thursday Night Football on CBS, it came about from bumping into a colleague on the streets of New York City, and he asked me, you know, what are you doing right now? What's going on? And I had just started working part-time at Inside Edition. I had been full-time for four and a half years. And then I moved part-time because I really wanted to do some other things like write the book, do a bit more in the entertainment industry in terms of acting and producing. And he asked me, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm actually part-time now with Inside Edition, and this is what's going on in my life. And I went home that night and I thought, oh my gosh. I just kind of spilled my whole situation to him. I probably should have just said, oh, I'm great. I'm fine. How are you? And moved on. Well, by being open and authentic and revealing that there was an opportunity for me to work more, he then down the road called me and talked to me about that Thursday night football reporter position. So that's one more reason that I want to encourage anybody listening to share what's going on in your life. It may be scary to you. But how are you going to get to that next level or find that next opportunity if you don't just share with people and are honest about what's going on? And I know it's scary, but I'm telling you, it worked for me. And in negotiation, I think, especially as women, we need to just let our guard down and talk about what's going on in our lives um, because that's, that's the way that I was able to get to the next level. Speaking of, you know, having the opportunity to do multiple things at once, um, I mean, you were only able to do that because, you know, your contract with Inside Edition changed. I mean, obviously, as women, it's so important that we fight to get money to, to be paid equally. But, you know, no one ever really talks about the importance of flexibility. Um, you know, what do you value more at this point in your life? That is a great question. Flexibility is really important, and in our ever-changing world and industry and the entertainment industry and media industry where we now have multiple platforms a lot of times for businesses. You know, I work for a television show, but we just recently had a meeting at Inside Edition about how important our website is, our social media accounts are, our partnerships with other major websites are. It is important to be flexible and be open and be creative. Two quick examples on that. The first one is when I went part-time with Inside Edition, it was a little bit scary, but I knew that I needed to do it to then be available for other opportunities. And it took a while, but I had time to write my book, which was important to me, and to pursue some other gigs. And so at the end of the day, maybe that's taking a little bit less money. But if you're doing what you want to do, what's more important? And for me, it was the experiences and fulfilling some goals and dreams that I had and not knowing if they were going to make money, but I wanted to you know, experience those things in my life. The second thing I would encourage people in is when you're actually negotiating those contracts, don't forget to look beyond money because a lot of times businesses, I talk about this in my book, a lot of times businesses have set budgets where they just can't offer any more in terms of money. But I had a friend 
along the way say to me, um, a friend, a producer out in LA, he said, well, ask for things other than money. Ask for more vacation days. Ask for um, maybe a clothing allowance, which could be taken from a different budget. Ask for a relationship with a health club. Um, think outside of the box of just money because that's sometimes where there is some wiggle room in these contracts. And that was some of the best advice I ever got. And then lastly, be creative, take initiative yourself. When I went on my second maternity leave at Inside Edition, I knew that I didn't want to be away too long because out of sight, out of mind in our industry as a reporter who is appearing on camera. So my husband and I built an audio booth in a closet in my house in Nashville, Tennessee. We went out and bought the soundproofing for the walls. I went out and got the microphone, the equipment, hooked up my Mac, lap, my Mac laptop, and then I went to Inside Edition and said, hey, I've already created this studio. I want you to know it's available if you want to use me to track during maternity leave. So I just want to encourage people, be creative, work the problem, um, and think beyond money. And with contract negotiation and sort of just negotiation in general, even if it's for a new job or a side hustle or something, now that you have two kids and also two jobs kind of as well, is it important to you moving forward when you interview for other um, opportunities that you have more flexibility with your family? You know, I don't know if that's even a point of negotiation. That is a great question and a great conversation. Um, I would be lying if I said that it is um, easy to discuss those types of things. On the one hand, we have this conversation going on right now in our country about better support for women, paid maternity leave, flexibility in terms of working from home. But that is not possible for all jobs and all careers. It's just not. Some jobs need you to be on site, need you to be in studio, need you to be in the office. So I think you really have to determine what's right for you and what career path you choose. Um, and it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, I'm a unapologetically ambitious woman. As you all mentioned, you know, I've, I've covered the Super Bowl for the last couple of years. That takes me off the grid for a week. I need to be in that city where the Super Bowl is for a week and be available 12, 14 hours a day. I will not see my family for that entire week. And that's just the way it goes. I cannot work from home. I can't ask for flexibility there. And I, that's what I signed up for. So I think you need to be practical and realistic about your industry and your career and what flexibility there is. And then you need to just see how you can work the problem. Um, and again, whether that is saying, okay, if I commit to this assignment and I do work the Super Bowl for 10 days, I need to get the next week off. And there is, you know, give and take there. But I think, you know, you got to realize that there's the it's it's easier said than done, and it's a conversation that's ongoing. But the final thought that I would say is you need to just ask. The worst that can happen is they will say no. Don't be afraid to just ask and work the problem and try to see if there is flexibility. The most important thing you can do is talk about it and ask. You know, I think in your book you also sort of outline that you don't just have flexibility you know, coming through with work when it comes to your family, your husband sounds just amazing. Um, do you want to brag about him for a minute? <laughs> I'd love to. 
<laughs> it's nice of you all to say, you know, I, whenever I speak to young women, I tell them one of the most important decisions you will make in your career if you want to have marriage and a family is who you choose as your partner. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the... I'm the partner with the big job in, in my marriage, and my husband knows that. I mean, he works too, but between the two of us, I'm traveling more. I'm the one that needs to go away for long periods of time for work projects. Um, he knows that, He's and he's supportive of me. And, you know, I was covering the Super Bowl, I believe it was Super Bowl uh, 48 in New Orleans, and there I was on the sidelines interviewing Beyonce, and my husband was at home changing diapers. <laughs> so, you know, he, he's supportive of my career, but then there's give and take. And when I come home, he needs to go maybe do his thing at work for a while. And then I take care of the kids. So you got to communicate with whoever you're dating about what the future looks like and talk about those things while you're dating. So suddenly it's not a surprise when you get married and you're continuing to, you know, pound the pavement and you want to continue that it's a surprise to your partner. So I would say, you know, hold out for that person that can really be a teammate for you because it is possible. And then just realize that, you know, there's, there's no perfect balance. It's an ongoing conversation for us. We're continuing to figure it out. But, um, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He's a huge key to my success. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful. He, he's a good man. So thanks for letting me talk about him. <laughs> and he cooks. I do not cook. That's amazing. He does all the cooking in my house. Do you find, um, and Allie and I have talked about this a lot, actually, but do you find that fathers kind of, I don't know how to phrase it, have a smaller requirement for what makes them a good father <laughs> or like what makes them more of a contributor to, uh, you know, being a parent, not, not necessarily yours. Basically but. are all of like the aunties and in-laws and ladies at the park thinking he's a superhero because he can change a diaper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I think that's a, that's a great conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, my husband has, you know, been in social situations with me where you're talking to a few other couples and they naturally turn to him and say, so tell us about your job. What do you do? And he literally turns to me and says, well, we moved to New York city for my wife's job. She's, you know, she's a reporter for Inside Edition. We moved here for her job. And, you know, and, and then people kind of, you know, are interested in that. And, well, okay, so does that mean that you left your job behind to my husband? And he has. He ha We have moved for my job in our marriage, in our relationship. And, yeah, I do think, unfortunately, in the 21st century, there is still this idea that, no, he would be the one. His job would, would take the priority. And, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, women are, they marvel at the fact that he can change a diaper, that he cooks, that he's got it. Um, I think we're seeing less and less of that, especially with the millennials where there's, you know, there's a lot of um, relationships where both partners work and both partners want to continue to work, you know, for the rest of their lives. But yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes to not get a little bit irritated when I still have those conversations or those situations. I'll just throw one other one out there. Um, I had a situation once in New York where I was speaking on a panel and I was the only female. It was a media panel on the art of storytelling and it was myself and four other guys. And when the event was about to begin, I literally had an older gentleman at the event come up to me and my husband 
And he turned to my husband and said, thank you for allowing your wife to be here tonight. Thanks for loaning Shut us your up. wife. Stop. Now he's an, listen, he's an older generation. <laughs> I get what he was, you know, saying there, but it, but my husband was kind of like, um, my wife will do whatever she wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There so, is still yeah, like this very weird double, yeah, like double standard. That yeah. People have. Totally. Yeah, we are. And I think, like, you know, I've noticed, for example, you know, if my husband does something to help out with my kid, our kid, you know, <laughs> everyone thinks he's like a god put here on earth and I'm told what a treasure and how helpful he is. And I'm like, I'm sorry, where are the people gathering around me complimenting me on the fact that I'm bringing in half our income? Where's where's my where's my applause, yeah. everyone? <laughs> Gather around. I'm waiting. Or for the 20 diapers you changed versus the one. There are definitely a lot of hurdles left to jump in terms of inequality at home, but also at work. Uh, You mentioned Mika Brzezinski in your book, and she recently just said in reference to this election and the debates that a lot of times a man will go in for a job interview and overstate his accomplishments, and a woman might go in and state them exactly, and still a lot of times the man gets the job. Um, So I think there's a lot of feelings of inequality um, in the workplace as well. I completely agree. And I think, you know, the guys are a part of this conversation. Obviously, it's huge. And, you know, my husband has said that he, he he really enjoys, you know, kind of taking on this conversation with other guys, especially especially older guys, about this upcoming generation and the fact that we are um, so equal in terms of both working and being teammates. So I think encouraging the guys to get into this conversation is, is really important. And, um, you know, I think... I think they, uh, you know, my husband says, I get offended, you know, when somebody says, oh my gosh, that's amazing that you cook. He's like, come on, I got this, you know? So I think the guys get a little more irritated sometimes than we realize too. And they need to keep speaking out and, and they will because, you know, we need, we need them to also talk about it and talk about how they're comfortable and cool with their role. I'll say just one more thing. My husband has really enjoyed being the one home with our boys. We have a one-year-old and a five-year-old. And he's really realizing that he's there for some key moments that if he was on the road all the time or the working father or the more absent father, he wouldn't be there for. And he said, I, I kind of need to do embrace that and realize, hey, oh my gosh, I'm going to, you know, Megan was gone and I took our son to his first football practice. And it was so cool to then come home and do dinner together. So he's embracing it and realizing that, wow, maybe we did guys a disservice by making them feel like they needed to be working and away from the home. You know, maybe guys, it's it's coming full circle now where guys are going, I really like tapping into this, you know, paternal side and this comforting side as a parent. Um, I think, I think the guys are seeing that as well. I think that's an amazing point. I don't think people generally give men enough credit. I think, in a lot of ways, how in previous decades we've said, you know, women aren't capable of doing certain things in the office. We're still saying that men aren't capable of doing certain things at home that they're not only capable of, but might even enjoy if given the opportunity to do it. Totally agree. I completely agree. Absolutely. They need to be included and built up and encouraged and praised for things other than just their job. Absolutely. Because their, their identity was um, so much centered on their job for so long, and and they need to tap into those other parts of their lives too. I think one of the really interesting things that you wrote about in your book is one of the times when it was his turn to travel for work. You were giving birth to your 
your second son. And I just thought it was so fascinating how creative you were about still making him feel included in that moment, even though he couldn't be there. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, gosh. What specifically? I'm, I'm just curious. What specifically how you hid you the gender. Part? I thought that was so <laughs> smart. I, I don't even know how you oh! had the presence of mind to think of that while in labor. <laughs> okay, I get you. That's so nice of you to uh, have read that and picked up on that. So our first child, we found out that we were having a boy ahead of time. Technology is awesome. It's amazing. We have those opportunities nowadays. When I got pregnant with our second child, we did not want to find out. Um, a friend of mine had not found out with her second baby, and I love that you know she shared with me. There are not many surprises in life anymore with technology. Yes, it's awesome that we know so much, but it's kind of fun to have a to have a surprise in life. So we decided to wait. weren't going to find out until I literally gave birth. I was convinced I was having a girl because I felt totally different than my first baby, which was a boy. So we had girl names picked out, we're ready to go, but we still weren't going to find out. Um, my husband had a work trip planned right on my 36th week of my pregnancy. Um, now my doctor said, please don't travel. <laughs> She's 36 weeks. This baby could come anytime. Please stay close. Well, I had flown for work up until 35 weeks and felt great. So I was like, oh, it's fine. We can hang on for another week or two. My first child was born at 38 and a half weeks. I said, babe, go. It's all good. So he took off and literally flew from Nashville, Tennessee to Seattle, Washington. I woke up in the middle of the night, went into labor. He was landing in Seattle. And I texted him and said, babe, honey, the baby's on the way. And he was like, you're kidding me. So he didn't even leave the Seattle airport, jumped on another flight to come back to Nashville, but that baby came within two hours. So I told everyone in the hospital room, please call the baby it. I don't want to know its gender. My husband and I wanted to experience this together. So my mom was with me and I said, mom, help me out here. So my mom told all the nurses, all the doctors, all the staff, when, when I was getting my C-section, I just kept repeating, please don't tell me the gender. And people were yelling out in the room, don't talk about the gender. We were referring to this baby as it. And everybody thought it was cute. And they were on board. And um, my mom held the child first. My son, which we later found out was a boy, but my mom held the baby first so that I wouldn't see any, any uh, private parts yet. <laughs> and we put a sign on the door of my hospital room that said, husband has not arrived yet. We are not revealing gender until he arrives. And so we, we held strong and my husband got to the hospital and they wheeled the baby in and we said, okay, let's find out together. And we found out together. I don't know how we pulled it off, but we did. And it was a special moment for us. And, um, yeah, it was a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. I love that, you know, your mom was there to hold the baby. And I, I honestly, like I can picture, you know, walking past the room and seeing that sign on the door. Like I literally got chills when you were saying that. I love it. <laughs> Oh, thank you. So, I mean, I really enjoyed your book and I really enjoyed, I, I learned a lot actually, um, you know, just being a 30-something-year-old woman in media, you know, and I, I definitely feel like, like you said, it was important to share things like salary and important to talk about negotiation and important to talk about even just a first job versus a renegotiation later. Those all helped me so much. So, you know, thanks so much for doing this with us. Yeah, this is really great. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. Wonderful question. Thank you so much for your support oh, of the book. I really appreciate it.
Thanks again to Megan Alexander for taking the time to be our very first guest. We actually got so much great info from Megan that we're saving all of her celebrity stuff for later in the season. You can check her out on Inside Edition and Faith in the Spotlight is available in bookstores and online now. And if you're in the Nashville area, you can join Megan at Parnassus Books this Thursday, October 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. If you enjoyed the first episode of I Can't Even, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at I Can't Even Show. And thank you to everyone who made this show possible, particularly Deanna Fay, who let us use her apartment for one of our interviews. And thanks to L.A. Markison and Jane Doe for taking the time to share your very personal stories with us. I Can't Even Show is written and produced by Allison Hanford and Margaret Verghese and edited by See Through Sound. Additional voice work was done by Mike Clemo. 